<laughs> you know, um, when I came, first came to America in 1982 to visit some friends, um, one of the friends said to me, you know, we're going to take you to a place you'll never have heard of it. And he said, uh, they make great hamburgers. So he took me for the first time to McDonald's. And as you can see, I got addicted. <laughs> now, we're going to read, first of all, in the Gospel of John. And we'll read together in chapter number, number 6. John's Gospel. And in chapter 6. And we'll read in verse number 53. 53. Sorry, verse 53. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh, of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Now down to verse number 66. <clears throat> From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Now over to the book of Acts, and in chapter 13. Acts 13, and reading at verse 13, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now the epistle to the Hebrews, and in chapter 10, Hebrews 10, and we'll read together at verse number 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. And the last reading in Second Timothy and chapter 4. And we'll read it, verse 9. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, this present age, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Now, the subject before us for the discussion this afternoon is that of the causes and cures of lost spiritual interest. And I would submit to you that this is a possible problem that could afflict every generation that's gathered in this hall today, just to lose sight of Christ. And for the fire to be burning a little dimly, 
and for our devotion to the Savior to perhaps not be realizing its fullest potential. And maybe even we could say, you know, being perfectly honest, I, I don't really have much interest at all. I would like in these four portions we've read just to raise four points. Now, as we discuss it, we will not be giving an exposition of text, but rather lifting a principle from each of these four sections of Scripture. When you turn to John chapter 6, we discover this, that many of Jesus' disciples went or walked no more after him. Now that was strange in John 6 because at the beginning of the chapter, he is a most popular Christ. He has fed 5,000, giving them something to eat. And so popular was Christ at the beginning of the chapter that their objective was to make him king. And he perceived that they would take him and make him king. And therefore, if he departed from their coasts and moved on, he was a very popular Christ. When you come to the end of the chapter, many of Jesus' disciples walked no more, meaning this, that he'd gone from being a popular Christ to being a forsaken Christ. Now you ask the question, what was it? that caused the popularity of Christ to drop and take him from the position of being, of, of the people wishing to make him king to actually stopping following him. Here's the answer. They were delighted with what Christ did in the feeding of the 5,000. But they were uncomfortable with what Christ said, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Many people are saved by God's grace and they're delighted with what God has done. God has saved them. But when the challenge of the word of God is laid bare to their lives, many follow no more after him. And if you were to pose the question to these individuals and the ones we're speaking about, I would judge are unsaved, but we'll just lift the principle. If you were asking them the question, why is it that you're not following? Why is it that you're giving up? They would say this, the cost is too high. The cost of commitment is just too great. And because of that, they no longer followed Christ. So the principle that I want to lift for discussion from John 6 is the cost of commitment and weighing the cost and surveying the challenge and in those cases deciding we are not going to follow Christ. The second, if I might say, the first is about feeding. The second is about faltering. And I want to bring you from the area of feeding in John 6, and the cost of that being too great, to the area of service in Acts 13. 
And a young man embarks on the field of service, and as he embarks upon this, he looks at all the different requirements of serving God, serving Christ, living with men in the gospel. And whilst the first people would say the cost is too much, John Mark said, the challenge is too great. I can't do it. I'm returning back from the field of service. The challenge is just too great in service. But then thirdly, you come to the Hebrew epistle, and if there are, if there are Christians in the word of God that really bring out my sympathy, it's the Hebrew Christians. They grew up with a written Old Testament. They worshipped at a physical altar. They gathered in a literal temple. And they presented physical sacrifices. And the death of Christ finished all of that. So they no longer have an altar on earth. Their altar is in heaven. They no longer have a sanctuary on earth. It's in heaven. It's a spiritual sanctuary in heaven rather than a material sanctuary on earth. And as these people just got involved in this new thing, this church, this new system, many of them said, the culture is too different. And they went back, turning their backs upon the pure character of a New Testament church and embracing the culture of Judaism. And may I remind you that the only God-given religion in the Bible was Judaism, and God himself annulled it at the cross. So you have those who are saying the cost is too much, and another who is saying the challenge is too great, and the third who are saying the culture is just too different. And you come to Demas. Demas would say this, well, for me, the world is too attractive. The things of this age are just too attractive, and he will leave the sphere of service and depart because he finds too much attraction in the world. I would submit to you that this affects every generation. I think with young people, the thing that we grapple with, or young people grapple with, is this, just this great cost of commitment. I want to hold on to so much, and yet there is a demand to be wholly and solely committed to Christ. And we'll discuss different aspects of commitment. How committed am I in my daily devotions to Christ? How committed am I to a holy life in the world? How committed am I in my place in God's assembly? Am I one of these that just come when I feel like leave it, when I don't feel like take part sometimes, don't take part any times? The cost of commitment. The great challenge in service 
the great culture difference between a spiritual, scriptural, local church and organized religion. And lastly, the possibility that there might just be brooding in our, breeding in our soul an affection for the world or the age or the spirit of the age in which we live. And as a result of that, we leave the sphere of service and depart, as Demas did, to follow a course in the world. Now, these will just act as introductory remarks and overall principles, and we'll discuss this matter of the causes and cures of lost spiritual interest against that background. Perhaps I could just maybe just invite the two brethren here just to comment on these, just, just broadly, on, on maybe the first area, your impression of it. The first area being John 6. John 6. The devotion. Yeah. One of the uh, features in John 6, uh, if you'll still have your Bible open there, that I think is instructive to us is the influence on the disciples when some had already left. In verse 66, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? The fact is that when there are some that leave, when there are some that depart, when there are some that drop out, um, it has an impact on those that are left. And that's the context here in John chapter, chapter 6. So I think it's, it's quite relevant to look at the reality. What do you do when maybe some of your peers, maybe some of your family, maybe friends that you at one time were like-minded with, and they've come to a fork in the road and they have either dropped out completely spiritually or they've decided to fellowship somewhere different, or your truth that you once shared in common has become so strained that the basis for the common bond that you had no longer seems to apply. That's the context in John chapter 6. And I think the real question or the, the real issue uh, is for those that are left, the question the Lord asks, will you also go away? So I think when I look at John chapter 6 in that context, then it makes it very telling to me. Not so much my attitude towards those that have gone away, because the Lord doesn't deal with that in John 6, but the impact of them going away on me. What's my response going to be, and how is it going to impact me? And how am I going to answer the question the Lord asks, will you also go away? Devotion at a time of departure. Mm -hmm. You know, it may seem a very basic point to make, but I'm going to make it that we will never be able to live for God unless we're genuinely saved. That seems like a very basic point. But unless there's genuine salvation, unless there's genuine divine life within me, I will never go on for God. And although we would never want to bring about people to doubt their salvation, it's imperative that we, each of us, examine our foundations because if we profess to be saved, and there is not a desire after spiritual things following that profession. 
there might be something wrong with the profession. And essentially in John 6, these people never quite got to this point where they were willing to eat of his flesh, that's communion with Christ, on the basis of drinking of his blood, that's the sacrifice of the cross, and they never quite appropriated that, and as a result of that went back from following Christ as his disciples. So, so uh, you're taking, just so I'm clear on this, these were people who eventually showed that they had never really been saved. Yeah. Okay. And you, you made the very clear point, very good point, that they were fine and they were appearing like followers of Christ as long as they were getting. But when it came to the issue of giving, and I'm not talking financially, giving of their, of their associations, and now they're going to associate with Christ and, and, and be identified with him, that proved the reality where they are. Mm. But is there a danger of assuming that this is the only case? That anybody who gets cold in heart, it's because they're not saved. That we could go to that extreme. I'm not saying you are, but I'm just saying that mm. we can easily jump and say, well, somebody got cold in heart, it went away, it proves they're not saved. I'm not sure we can make that judgment. But we must not deny it is a real possibility. Well, one example I would give to support the point you just made is with Peter. Yeah. There he is in the judgment hall. And oftentimes, Satan attack, Satan's attack just doesn't come up on our radar screen. And here's a man full of courage that he's going to stand with and defend Christ. And would you believe it? The voice of a damsel was the route whereby Peter would trip. Now, there's a man who, whose courage failed him, who failed the Lord. I don't know if you could use the term backsliding here, but he backslid in spirit from the Lord, but he was genuinely saved. That supports the other point, yeah. that not every backslider is unsaved. So Judas proved that he wasn't saved. No, he wasn't saved. Peter didn't have to be resaved. Yeah. But it can happen to everyone who was saved. We can have this kind of what characterized these people who were unsaved can actually be the experience of believers in the sense of that when we go from viewing our Christianity all about us and the getting. And suddenly we're confronted with the costs of having to give. That can turn people the wrong way. Mm. And it's a, it's a sad thing, but we're all capable of not being willing to <clears throat> face that cost. You comfortable with that? Yes. I just mm. would want to be crystal clear that we are not suggesting, and I know Colin and John are not either, we are not suggesting that everyone who has left the fellowship of one of the assemblies that we form part of is probably not saved. They went out from us because they were not of us. That's not what we're suggesting from the platform today. Um, there's a possibility that a person unwilling to pay the cost of commitment uh, goes on to prove in their life that there was never regeneration. Uh, but as Colin has stressed in the case of Peter, there's also the possibility that a person is tripped up and ensnared. What I would personally like to just maybe really emphasize here is speak to those who have not departed. Okay, you're here today, and you may have those in your family, those in your circle of friends who have left, whether left the assembly you're in or left following the Lord completely. 
Um, you haven't. So in John chapter 6, you fall into the group represented by the 12. When the Lord addresses the 12 in verse 67, and he says, will ye also go away? So I would just ask you to ask yourself that question today, as I ask myself that question today. How do you remain devoted in a time of departure when others have gone away? And the Lord reaches into my heart and says, what about you? Will you go away? And just, this is not the time for a sermon, but just a few points. Number one, devotion in a time of departure is not going to be found by focusing on those who have departed. Don't become obsessed with those that have departed, neither in a spirit of judging them and saying, oh, they were never saved, they didn't this, and so on, or necessarily even in the spirit of pursuing them to try to, you may never get answers and you may never be able to solve those sorts of issues. But it's interesting here that the Lord doesn't tell the disciples, nor does Peter in his response, spend a lot of time or preoccupation with those that have departed. Because that's not going to produce devotion. Secondly, devotion is not going to be found in focusing on those that were left. We're guilty of that too. If we stop talking about those that have left, then we start talking about ourselves. Well, we have the truth and we're holding this and we're... Devotion is not going to be found by focusing on ourselves. Peter and the disciples were guilty of that on a different occasion when they found those that were casting out devils and are they with us or are they against us and so on. Focusing on others will generally never provide me an adequate reason to stay. Nor will it ever adequately provide a reason for me to leave. It's not enough to just have a band of brothers mentality. You know, they've left, but we're here and we're going to band together and we're going to... What is going to produce devotion? It's not found in focusing on myself. Peter was guilty of that as well. Though all will forsake ye, yet will not I. What did he do? Denied the Lord. So right in this passage, the one thing I would like to stress is in Peter's answer in verse 68. Devotion at a time of departure is only ever found in focusing on Christ. And when the Lord says to the disciples, including Peter, will you also go away? Peter doesn't speak about those that have gone away. Peter doesn't speak about the other disciples. Peter doesn't speak about himself. Verse 68, Peter answers and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. So focus on Christ. Focus on his words. Focus on the word of God. And that's where you will find the answer to devotion in a time of departure. Mm -hmm. If I am focused on the Lord, I'll never have a reason to leave him. And if I'm focused on his word, I'll never have a reason to leave a place that is submissive, submissive to all of the word of God. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And I would just like to add this, that I have found, and this is just a personal uh, illustration here, but... To, to my mind, and I'm sure the brother agree with this, that the, the key to not losing spiritual interest and the key to maintaining devotion is our daily relationship with the Lord. And I would say this to you, that from a personal experience, my most spiritually profitable, beneficial, warmest times are times when I, when I practice the daily appointment with God so that you rise at a certain time 
And that time in the morning is set aside for the reading of the Word of God and for prayer. Now, the reason I would emphasize the appointment is this, is that you will discover there are some days when you don't feel like reading your Bible, and there are some days that you don't feel like praying. But if you've cultivated the, the daily habit of setting aside that time in the morning and that time in the evening to be alone with God in prayer and read his word, that when the coldness might creep in, and it could come in for any amount of reasons, that daily discipline will help keep you on track. John, you want to comment on that? Or? No, go ahead. Okay, let's move on to the next one, and I'll bring you in first on this one, John. And we're going to speak about the field of service. And uh, this time it's not so much the cost is too high, but this time I've called the challenge is too great. And here's a man in John Mark, good upbringing, and he's, he goes out in service for God with two great men. And he's full of enthusiasm. And just along the way, we don't quite know why, but there's a couple of obstructions come his way. And he says this, I can't go on. This challenge is too great for me. And as he just faces some of the difficulties that, and discouragements that you face in the course of service, he loses that element of spiritual interest and departs from Paul and Barnabas. Now, you're a servant, eh, John. You must have come across brick walls in the course of your service that really, really gave you a dunt and made you feel the pangs of suffering in the course of serving the Lord. I've had it pretty easy. <laughs> I do think that John Mark was uh, really privileged. And uh, do you think there's any possibility that with him, there may have been just a whole struggle doctrinally with the possibility of the gospel now going out to Gentiles? Mm -hmm. And that that difficulty, a doctrinal issue, if I can call it that, his confusion, his lack of clarity and conviction on that, when conviction is not based clearly on God's revelation and there's confusion on it, that can result in discouragement. And um, I would say that maybe that's some things that struggle with when you're not clear on what God's will is in God's word. It's hard to keep going if you don't have the conviction from God's revelation. And if he didn't have it clear in his mind that the gospel now should go to Gentiles, maybe because... You're going to accuse me of stretching this, and that's okay. Maybe his mother was pretty tied to the Jews and the Jewish faith and the Jewish people. Maybe the pull was strong on him. And this idea is, it just, he struggled with it. And when you struggle with issues, it can lead to discouragement, and you lose your interest in serving. Well, you know, we don't, I don't think we today appreciate just how big a subject that was in those days. That's right that the Gentiles, who were Gentile dogs, should be brought into the blessing of the gospel and the blessing of inheritance. That was a big issue in those days. It was the tug that there was in the great crisis in Acts 15, 
in the matter of circumcision. It was the great battle that existed in, in Galatian epistle, with again with Judaism creeping into the area of Christianity. It was the whole, same tool that existed in the epistle to the Hebrews, and it could have been that very same thing that caused John Mark to falter. But whatever the reason was, he hit a time where he felt he couldn't continue in it. And um, the sad thing is this, is that when you falter in your faith, it often has a knock-on effect on other things, and eventually this very same issue caused the division to come between two great men, between Paul and Barnabas, on that issue of, of John Mark. And it just brings before us just how important any individual can be in the field of service, and the difficulties they can introduce through faltering, as it was demonstrated with um, Paul and Barnabas splitting and going their separate ways. I was just thinking, though, that sometimes when it comes to Christian service, it's pretty exciting. You know, you get to spend time together with other believers. You're like a team. You're working together, and you're out, and you're doing something. And it, But you can't live on the emotion of it. At some point, it will get tested, in this case, and I'm being hard on John Mark without knowing the whole details. I'll apologize to him in heaven, but... You can't live, you can't serve just because it's enjoyable and it's fun and it makes you feel good and it, it gives you a sense of community and teamwork. That will eventually be tested until it comes down to whether we have the conviction from the Word of God. That's what it comes down to. And that's what will keep us going in times where it gets discouraging. And in fact, tying these first two together because it's a similar thread that runs between them. Uh, our perception of Christian living, I do fear, I touched on this very briefly, just a glancing blow in passing. I, I do worry that a fair bit of modern writing and blogs and so on on Christian living paint a very rosy um, perception of being a Christian. It's all joy, it's all upbeat, enjoying the Lord and uh, pursuing happiness. And it's interesting that the Lord's presentation of Christian living uh, generally wasn't shy to put the cost of commitment right up front. In other words, it wasn't like a bait and switch, like follow me and all will be great. And then after people chose to follow him, they found out there actually was a fair bit of adversity. It was the opposite. So in Luke chapter 9, the Lord Jesus says this, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall find it. And he has never changed that cost of commitment. And that is the life to which we're called. Now that doesn't mean that we look for adversity and wear it as a badge of honor and think it make us better Christians. It doesn't. But it means that we should embrace that that's what the Christian life will be. It will be a life that calls for commitment even in the face of adversity. So don't sign up to the modern idea of Christian living that it's just all whistling happy songs on our way to heaven. Uh, there is joy that comes with serving the Lord, but it is a joy that will be there because He provides it when we are sold out in commitment to serving him. Good. If, if it was the case that he was struggling over the issue of taking the gospel to the, to the Gentiles, 
And if it is the case that the last section of his gospel is really written by him, quite a change. Now a man writes, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Every creature. He was So this is encouraging to us that when times you get discouraged, discouragement does not have to be fatal. God can overcome that and help us sort things out and help others sort things out. And so we, we, we don't need to write people off. There's potential for all of us. And uh, God allows it. But here we have a case of a man who definitely was recovered. Yeah, failure in the Word of God is never final. That's right. Yeah. Now, moving on to the third section, I, I really intended to spend the most time on this because this brings us to the matter of what I'm going to call the distinctive character of God's assembly. And I'm sure you've been well taught on this subject in America or Canada or wherever you're from, that every time God has a place of gathering for his people, he prescribes every part of that place of gathering with great precision. So that when you come to the tabernacle, every detail of the tabernacle is laid bare in the chapters in Exodus where God has a place of gathering in the tabernacle for his people. Then when you come to the temple, there's a clear pattern read down again in the temple, which was built under the guidance of Solomon. And when you come to the church of God in the New Testament, that once again there is a clear prescription, guidelines, principles laid bare in the New Testament upon which the church will gather. Now, the issue that arose in the Hebrew epistle was this. These people had been saved from Judaism. They liked an ornate structure. They liked a big building. They wanted a main man, the priest. They wanted a music-based worship. And they wanted a physical sacrifice. The church is a spiritual entity. We place no significance on an ordinate structure. We do not go in for one-man ministry or any man, main man in the church. We only own the headship of Christ. A music-based worship, which is increasingly popular in this day and generation, is unscriptural in a New Testament church. And we own no other guide as our other guide than the teaching of the New Testament on this matter. And I should have said, we own no other sacrifice and altar but Calvary. Now, in the Hebrew epistle, people had gathered out from that and gathered in assembly fellowship and decided they just didn't quite like this. As a result of that, many of them were leaving and going back to Judaism. That's essentially what is meant, what is meant by forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And they were embracing a system which God finished with at the cross, and therefore bringing the people of God to a point where their confidence was being challenged as they watched this drift away to a more tangible type of religion and a Judaistic type of worship. And we, we must be careful in this day and age 
that we don't drift into that ourselves and embrace mass churches with big men and big bands and big music things because that is not the teaching of the Word of God with respect to the local church. And it may be appealing. It may be appealing. But what we want to just grasp is the purity and the distinctive character of the church of God, the local assembly, in each of our localities and gather in complete support and commitment to Christ in that place. You made the statement, Colin, uh, just picking up one example, but you made the statement uh, relative to music ministries. It could be made with, um, I suppose, women's ministries and um, schools of theology and so on. But you, you've made the statement that it's not scriptural. It is not uh, according to the teaching of the New Testament. Um, could you elaborate on that? How can we make a statement like that, that something is not um, scriptural? Well, if, if you take the subject of music, for example, and you want to see the part it played in the worship of the Old Testament, particularly in the temple, you could go to the Psalms. Mm -hmm. And you could see that there were various instruments used in the course of the worship of God in the Old Testament. That is distinctly missing in the New. You read verses like speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with bass in your heart unto the Lord. That's why we sing as a, 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 the, as, a, as a whole church together. But the idea of instruments and music and all these things forming part of the worship of the church of God is simply not found in the epistles. And it's upon the epistles that we base our ground for New Testament uh, exercise. Mm -hmm. As far as the ministry of women's concerned, then it's clearly taught in Corinthians, in, in, in Timothy chapter 2 and in 1 Corinthians 14 that the woman is given the position of silence. Now, we don't circumnavigate that by saying, well, if the woman can't speak in the church, we'll have extra church, extra gatherings other than the church, so women can speak. To my mind, that's just adding to what the scripture teaches and introducing women to a place that God never gave them. Now, it's interesting this, that if you go back to Eden, and when you touch the subject of headship and subjection, the covering of the sister's head and the silence of the sister, it goes back to Eden. This is creatorial condition. The reason the sister covers her head in church is because of this, Adam was first formed, then Eve. So because of that, the woman covers her head in the church, creatorially, because Adam was, Adam was Eve's head. But when it comes to the matter of silence, that is introduced in the matter, not of headship only, but in the matter of subjection. Because she was given the opportunity, she took the opportunity to handle the word of God, and in so doing, created havoc. Now, upon that, no book in the Bible was written by a woman. God did not give her that role. Interestingly, although God didn't give the woman the opportunity to, to write the books, he did give the women great songs. So he gave the song of redemption to Miriam in the Exodus, and the song to Hannah, and the song to Deborah, and the song to, to Mary. And it meant this, that they filled a role in the matter of redemption, and all these chapters are associated with redemption. And what did God choose to bring in the, what medium did God choose to bring in the, the Christ? the medium of a woman, a virgin, 
So God gives everyone great honor and great place. But we need to be careful that we do not give either music or women a place which the New Testament doesn't give. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's a long answer, Andrea. I went no, no, there, and but... it wasn't meant as a controversial question. It was, uh, I completely agree with your approach in handling it. The point I would like to make is this. There's a lot of noise today uh, around the question of whether there is or is not in the New Testament a pattern for a local church gathering. And I'm not particularly interested in semantics. You know, what, what does the word pattern mean? So if by pattern, do we mean a physical pattern like there was for the tabernacle that spelled out every piece of furniture in detail with dimensions and the type of material that was to be used and so on? Do we have that for the way a local church functions? No, we don't. We don't have anything that tells us how many times we need to meet in a week, uh, how long a meeting should be, exactly how it should be conducted, and so on. So if by the word pattern... Uh, you take offense to that and think that it's just a way to defend traditions and try to teach for doctrine the commandments of men, then I won't use the word pattern. But let's strip away the semantics and talk about how we approach the New Testament in terms of our guidance for the way a local church is to function. And I would like to state my conviction quite clearly, and I think it aligns with Brother Colin from what he has just said, that when it comes to determining how a local church should function, We follow the clear teaching, if you want to please, it'd be precepts. So if there's a specific teaching given directly in the New Testament, for example, 1 Corinthians 5 relative to uh, moral fitness, or 1 Corinthians 11 relative to the uh, breaking of bread and the taking of the cup, we follow the specific teaching that's given, the precepts that are there. Secondly, we follow the principles of the New Testament. So if there are principles that are given, even principles that we can trace back to the house of God, the house of God in the Old Testament is used of the tabernacles, used of the temple. In 1 Timothy 3, it's used of the local assembly. So we can take principles and apply those. But the point I would most forcefully like to make today is that the New Testament is also intended to be the place that we look for precedent for the practices of the early church, and we seek to follow them to the extent that we can. Now, it does take wisdom. There are certain cultural practices that may or may not translate over, and I'm not naive enough to try to create a watertight argument, because that would just be mine. But the New Testament, I would suggest to you, there's two ways to look at it. There's a school of thought now that would like to suggest to us that what we have in the narrative of the New Testament, the book of Acts and the epistles, is we have the historical narrative of the way those Christians chose to apply those principles in their cultural and historic setting to meet the needs of their time. And that's all it is. It's just a historical narrative of what they did. And it is never meant to be tying our hands in the way we may choose to apply those principles in our day, today. That's one view of the New Testament. The other view of the New Testament is, we look to the New Testament to see how did the early disciples meet? What did they do? What were the purpose of their gatherings? What did they not do? What's missing? And in doing that, it's not just a historical narrative of something that was relevant to their day. It actually is laying down God's desired precedent that he intends us to follow. Now, our brother Colin, in answering the question about music, made the point that in the Old Testament, there's a lot made of the role of music. 
looking forward to a future day, there's reference made to the use of music. But when you come to the New Testament, through the book of Acts and through the epistles, there is no mention whatsoever of music playing any role, any role in the public functioning of a local church. The method of interpretation that I have just described means that therefore when we look into the New Testament, we would not feel the compulsion to introduce instrumental music into the functioning of a local church because it's absent. Now some do not subscribe to that method of interpretation. And some take great exception to that. <clears throat> and I'm not here to judge them. But I am here to state publicly, I believe that the New Testament is much more than just a historical narrative on what people happened to do in the first century. I think the New Testament is meant to be our guide. And when something is completely absent from the functioning of local assemblies in the pages of the New Testament, we should tread very carefully and very lightly in seeking to introduce it just because pragmatically it seems to work. Amen. I, I know that we can't develop this subject at the moment, but as you just, I, I completely agree with what our brother said, but as you look at the subject of a New Testament church and its function, two men take two different lines in your New Testament. When the Apostle Paul addresses the, the local assembly, the church of God, he, he really looks at it as we are members in the body. But when Peter takes it up, he speaks of it that we are priests in the sanctuary. Now the body was a new revelation. That was the revelation of the mystery given to Paul. Whereas the sanctuary was an old revelation. Now it's interesting, when Peter takes it up, he omits all of these issues that we've just mentioned and focuses on this, the exercise of priesthood and the function of offering up spiritual sacrifice to God. Now, if you want an example of that, by all means, go back to the Old Testament and see that when God brought his people into the sanctuary of Leviticus, he did it through the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, and that was all ground of approach. And you could see the types in the tabernacle that was all typical teaching of priests in the sanctuary. And both these two lines run in perfect parallel without contradicting any of the points that have been made by my brother. Andrew, could I just go back to what you said here? Because these people could have said, the apostles' doctrine never says you can't. Mm -hmm. And you're saying the answer to that is that the Apostles' Doctrine never says they can't. The absence of it is significant. It's not that God doesn't care. It's God's way of saying that that's not supposed to be there. And I, I guess the illustration stuck with me when I was little. Uh, I, I don't know too much about architectural plans, but as far as I know, you don't put on the plans. Kevin, can you help me with this? I don't think you put on the plans where you don't want the stairs. Don't you put where you do want them? And the fact that they're not connected to that window out, that you don't come through the window in the house is probably significant that the architect didn't want it there. And that's the way the New Testament is. It is a positive pattern. It's a positive, whatever word you want to use. Again, the semantics, I think, is, is, it gets us distracted from the issue. The issue is that the Scripture has given us exactly what we need. And the absence is significant in the New Testament. I agree. I agree. Now, our time's almost gone. I think, what have we got? Maybe five 
five or six minutes. Let's just come on to this last uh, man. Are, are you brethren satisfied? Some people say, well, he went to a place where there was an assembly. He went to Thessalonica. I, am, I feel that the way this is structured in 2 Timothy 4, I think the spirit of the age got a grip of Demas and distracted him from the field of service. And there's a, there's a whole host of things in the, the present age that could just distract us from Christ. There's the golden handcuffs of, of modern business. You know what that's like. They want your all. There's the world of sport that's so seductive. There's the world of music, incredibly powerful on our emotions and takes us into a realm of sin that as Christians we should never even imagine the world of music. And so you could go on, and it's, it, it's all presented so plausibly. Satan's, Satan's way of just making the world so attractive and harmless to the people of God, whilst he sucks us in and through it just squeezes all the sinew of our spiritual life out of us. I, I think that's what I, I... I wouldn't go as far as being able to define... What aspect of the age or the world affected Demas? But it certainly gripped him. And he forsook the path of service because of a, a love for uh, the, the, the world. Mm -hmm. Is there any significance that it says that he loved this present age? Mm -hmm. If he had just written he loved this age, we'd kind of get the same thing. Is there an mm -hmm. emphasis there? The temporal versus the eternal. Yeah. yeah. And also, in every generation, there's something will attract more than others. Yeah. I mean, you brethren mentioned, I, I'm not on Facebook, but I mean, surely you must recognize the, the great perils of, of the present age. That's what we're gripped with. Living life with such openness and, mm -hmm. and all the, you, you, I think you mentioned about likes and all these things and this promotion of self and so on. Is that not a real characteristic of the present? Something that could, something that could be very effectively used in a matter of communication is, is absolutely absorbing people's time and energy and interest. Mm -hmm. I, I sit in meetings ministering the word of God and you see someone just stroking their phone looking at Facebook. And um, I've, thought of, I've thought of stopping the meeting and I just fear maybe the embarrassment would just be too much for them. But please know, please know that if your life is so dominated by these things, then go and sit beside Demas because that was the very thing that just pulled them back from the service of God. Two things I want to say just before the, the time's gone. But number one is... Um, I don't know how many of you subscribe to Peter Ramsey's weekly Bible Bite that he sends out from uh, his website. But if you do, uh, good. If you don't, you should. Uh, and all of the information streaming into your consciousness, Peter's weekly little bite that he gives you will be much more profitable than the vast majority of the rest. This past week, Peter's Bible Bite was on this subject of the world. In particular, using Lot in Sodom as an example. If you haven't read it, I would strongly encourage you to read it. As a husband and a father, when I read it, uh, earlier this week at my desk, I forwarded it to all of my children and my son-in-law, daughter-in-law, and my wife. Because I believe it's very, very, very timely and relevant. I think the world 
And I'm not throwing stones at anybody else. I'm searching my own heart. The world has far, far more of a grip on us and our perspectives than maybe on any generation in the recent history mm-hmm. of assembly testimony. We have let the world in. We've let, we have reacted so strongly to the perceived weakness of a former generation that had list-based Christianity that was all external and it was all don't do this and do this and if you don't do this and checklist all the right things then you're a good Christian. And it was all empty and hollow and, and rightly there was criticism of that and absolutely Christian character will never be based by external conformity to a code. I totally agree. But I really fear that in our reaction to that We have thrown all the checklists out the window, and we have totally embraced a world that crucified our Savior. Mm -hmm. So I would really encourage young, old, middle-aged men, women, brother, sister, get that Bible bite and read it. It's very, very searching to see how a man's righteous soul was grieved with the wickedness in Sodom, but he spent years there and lost his testimony there Mm -hmm. and had to be dragged reluctantly out of there Mm -hmm. by the grace of God. The second thing I wanted to say is an antidote to that, because this was supposed to be the causes and cures of departure. And in my own soul, in the last, maybe the last couple of months, I've been meditating on and asking the Lord to impress me with the truth of Galatians 6 and verse 14. Galatians 6 and 14, Paul says, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified to me and I'm crucified to the world. And I'm not going to take any time to explain what I think that might mean except to say this. All the people that you're mingling with in the world that you are sharing so much in common with and so am I, the sports heroes, the entertainment heroes, the business heroes, the political leaders, all of those people in the world Bring them to the cross and look at Jesus on the cross and understand that's what the world thought of him. And they've never changed their mind. And then you stand at that cross and say, what did he think of me? The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And as I stand at the cross, my prayer out of my soul has been, Lord, help me to have a proper perspective on the world. Mm-hmm. Because I really do fear that this danger with Demas is very, very, very real today. We are losing effective testimony for Christ because we are willingly allowing ourselves to simply be absorbed into the world that crucified him. And we will never live for him in the world if we lose sight of the fact that just like him, we're not of the world. Well... I'm going to bring this to a, a, a conclusion now, and thanks to my two brethren for their help, and thanks to you as an audience for listening. I'm sure you've got loads of questions and comments you would like to have made. That's not the format that's been adopted, but what I would say is this is, if there have been matters that have been raised that you have either identified with and agreed with or even disagreed with, my advice is very simple. Just go back when everything's finished tonight. Just bow in the presence of God and with an open heart and open mind, just lay the matter before God and pray that whatever the issue is, that he'll guide you as to how to come through it and give you the strength to face 
whatever you feel your particular and individual hurdle is. We've all been that road. Christianity is a struggle from start to finish. But through the grace of God and a close relationship with him, we can get through it and move forward and move onward and yield our lives as something of 